Let's read our passage this morning. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Two to read this morning. First in Jude, verses five through seven. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Happy Father's Day. And, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And then to Luke. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone had rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood, uh, stood by them in dazzling apparel, And as they were frightened and bowed their faces down to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning, we have a lot of ground to cover, and I am very excited for this. This is one of those passages, so I think we're very first talking about this series in the Creed. I said, I want that one. That's going to be a fun one. Um, Today, we're looking at he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead, which is, of course, uh, the he there is, of course, Jesus. Um, so today we're, we're looking at this. Uh, last week, we talked about the death and the burial of Jesus, and I think there's nothing more grounding to the humanity of Jesus than talking about his death and his burial. It's very humanish to talk about those sorts of things, to put our Lord in that category really does uh, take our, our, our mighty God and bring him fully into that human experience. And so it's good for us to dwell on that. But this week, we're looking at something completely different. This week, we are going to be chiefly talking about the spiritual realm. And this becomes sort of a a, a weird topic for us to kind of uh, dwell on and to talk about. In in the American church here in the 21st century, uh, sometimes we have a difficult time really talking about the supernatural. 
However, I think that the more that we spend in God's word, we realize that a faith without the consideration of the reality of the supernatural is not a biblical faith. Maybe a faith, but this is not a biblical one. Because what we see in scripture is a whole truth taught, not simply a truth taught about the physicality of humanity or some specific aspect, but the whole of God's creation. And I think, you know, after, even after I say that, I think many of us, if we, we got together and having a conversation, we would, we'd actually really embrace conversations about like a powerful conversion, uh, someone's life story, um, the, the reality of providence and direct answer to prayer. I think that we would, we would talk about those things and engage in those things. But somehow I don't think we have a great way of somehow having that conversation and bringing it into, I think, what we might affectionately call real life. It's very easy for us to compartmentalize the supernatural aspect of God and to somehow have, have our conversation about supernatural things about God. And then we turn around and we live as though these things are somehow different from these things that we live in real life. Am I the only one who kind of sees that? Anyone else? I feel alone up here. I hear some amens or some, okay. Uh, I think we have a difficult time saying, but what does that mean in real life, right? I think sometimes we become uncomfortable with some of the implications and the possibilities of the spiritual. And yet I think if we, as, as believers in Jesus, were to actually fully engage with that aspect of our faith, not, not to engage in the supernatural discussion and then ignore the, 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 the natural or physical, but if we were to actually talk about all of it together, I think what we'd find is that as we were having those kinds of conversations, to those outside of the knowledge of Jesus, all of a sudden, the truth of Jesus becomes something irresistible because it deals with the full aspect of humans. It deals with all of us. And I think if we were to take an objective look at our society, I think we see a society that actually craves what I like to call just the epic. They crave something big bigger than themselves. There are too many people who would rather live in a fashion false reality with great stakes and legendary heroes, maybe epic quests, and spend a lot of their time there because once they leave there, they have to face a world that's really devoid of the beautiful and visible. They look around and they don't see it. They can't perceive it. Whether it's something like sports, which I know doesn't feel like it fits in that category, but I think it does. It's something that's bigger than you. It's a, it's a bigger community. It's a big, it, you know, the big stadiums, lots of people. It's, it's big. It's epic, right? You got sports and even things like comics or just fantasy and sci-fi, video games, film, other stories, even old, old stories. I think people would much rather spend 
most of their resources in their life there. Because when they look at their own life, it's not what they want. The distraction becomes a focus. What we normally call distractions. They become a primary focus because most people don't really like the life they have. They don't like the life they live. And you know what? They shouldn't. They shouldn't like it. Someone who doesn't know about Jesus should not be encouraged to enjoy life to the full extent that they do because they don't get all of it. They don't understand all the aspects of it, and they actually can't fully enjoy all of life because they're missing something. They're actually missing the main point that allows them to fully engage with what it means to be fully human as we were designed to experience the physical world devoid of the spiritual reality of our Lord. I'm just going to say it. It's not worth living. It really isn't. And it's boring. It's so boring. People got to find things to jazz it up all the time. I did say jazz it up. I'm bringing that phrase back. <laughs> bringing it back. Today we're going to look at this part of the creed, and not this whole part, but this is kind of the section that we're in here, but descended to hell, or the dead, third day rose again. How many of you, when we were going through the creed, were like, what are we going to do with this? Um, today we're going to look at that part of the creed. It's, it, honestly, when, when you say it out loud, uh, it would give any big budget summer blockbuster a run for their money. Just this phrase, this is like the tagline, this is like on the poster, and it could be like, the creed. You descended into hell, and the third day you rose again from the dead. And it's just like, yeah, that's cool, let's, let's talk about that, that's neat. That, that would sell, right? And, um, yeah, so, so first we've got to kind of, we're going to break it off into two parts. Obviously, this fits into two nice little parts here, right? The first one is, he descended to the dead, um, and I think sometimes we read through that and we think, we don't really mean he descended to hell. We don't really mean that. And the answer is, yes, yes, we do. We do believe that, not because we're, we're making something up, because it is actually grounded in very deep and integrated biblical principles, which we will discuss right now. Um, let's go back to Jude 5 through 7. It's weird to not say a chapter with Jude, but that's the way it goes. Jude verses 5 through 7. Look at this. This is Jude, half-brother Jesus, saying, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So we even talked about that. They left Egypt, right? Um, this is talking about that, that, that supernatural aspect of, of this thing, and it's talking about judgment. So next verse it says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Who's read through this and thought, what in the world is that? Well, we're going to talk about what in the world this is. But I want to read verse 7 because it does connect, and we kind of need to connect these things. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, we're still talking about judgment. Okay? And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire served as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So all these topics, all these points, they actually all go together. So in verse 6, 
where it talks about these angels. We're going to talk about that. What does that mean? Uh, but let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18, uh, 18 through 20. In the same vein, it says here, it's for Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. That's what we talked about last week, right? Being made, uh, lost my, there we go. Being made alive in the spirit. Okay, so we talked about dead physically, but he's alive spiritually, right? In which, so when he's in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey uh, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. How did we get from Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison to Noah? How did we get there? For us, it's not, there's not an exact connection for us. But when Peter was writing this, it was an assumed knowledge. We assume that we know this part of the story, and so Peter's just making a logical connection. Well, we actually have missed out on the majority of that story. It's not really talked about a whole lot. But in order to make sense as to, to what this means, we're going to kind of dive in here a little bit, and we're going to go what feels like to be off the beaten path, but just hang in there, because when we get to the end, you'll see how it actually all really does connect and connects really well. And I think that many people struggle with this aspect of the creed because they feel like what's being stated is that Jesus went to the grave, he went to the dead, or he went to hell, and that he suffered. Like he went there because he was being punished in this, this sort of way. And I think the more that we look at some of these passages, you'll see that's, that's not the case at all. That is not the context in which Jesus arrives. But again, as we look at this as 21st century American Christians, we have been done a disservice in a sense we don't really know or understand a whole lot about this aspect of reality, which is the afterlife, if you want to put it that way, the, the underworld, the, the place of the dead. And if you really think about it, what is normally stated as just an understanding of truth is really, really overly simplistic, right? Now, if we're going to say, what happens after you die? I'll just I'll ask, ask you all. What happens after you die? If you're a Christian, what happens? You go to heaven. And really, that's, that's kind of the end of the sentence. Put a period at the end. Be like, yeah, go to, go to heaven. What happens if you go to, Christ, go, go to uh, the dead if, if you die and you're, you're not a Christian? You go what? You go to hell. Okay, again, period at the end. We're, we're done, right? That's, that's like a five-year-old answering that question. When you die, we go, I'll go to, to heaven. What if I, well, I'll go to hell. And, and you know what? It's, it's really kind of on us, too, that we're satisfied with that. Like, that's it. And we so oversimplified the spiritual realm to the point where we almost don't take spiritual things all that seriously. 
or at least what we do is we create an environment where we make it not really mean anything. It's not exciting. It's, not, it's whatever. And it's funny, you know, the elders, we talk about this whenever it comes up. We don't just sit around and talk about this. But for a lot of Christians, our knowledge of the afterlife is more informed by Looney Tunes than anything else. Again, when we say heaven, it's like when I die and I go to heaven, I, it, apparently we all have a uniform. What's the uniform? White robe, right? Not even any buttons. I don't even know how we get our head in there because it's like right, right up there. Um, we got this robe. What do we do? You either fly around, but when you're tired of flying around, you sit on a cloud, right? And we're all playing harps or something, right? That just sounds like, I don't know, harps, very tingy, clouds, very damp. I don't know. It's just like a very weird thing when you think about it. The more you think about it, the weirder it is. It's like, that's it? Eternal glory sitting in a damp white robe someplace. I mean, that's not my idea of what heaven should be. And then we've got, so we do that. That's like conceptually what we do, right? And then we read things like, there's streets of gold. We all have a place to live. We've got this tree of life. We've got the river of life. Where's all that stuff? I don't know, down there somewhere, because I'm stuck sitting on a cloud. We have this really weird thinking about that. Now, now let's, let's talk about the other place, which is also what we call it, the other place, the other place. If you go to the other place, what does it look like? It's dark, okay. What's around you, though? It's like supposed to be totally dark, but of course we can all see. What do we see? Fire, okay, it's fire here, right? What else? What's the surroundings look like? What? It's a cave. It's a cave. Stalactites, stalagmites, right? Cave. What else? Let me see. If we look, all look over here, sitting up on a dais somewhere, what's over here? Lucifer or Satan or the devil, and depending on how you say it, he looks different, but generally, what does he look like? Red, horns, holding what? It's baling hay, right? It's just like, there he is. Do you think there's any hay in hell? I mean, what is the pitchfork for? And it's funny, it's laughable, but we're like, that's theology. Boop, done. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. That's silly. It really is childish. What we normally are satisfied with as far as our theology of the afterlife. And I'll tell you what, part of this, I think, is a strategy from the enemy to make us be like, whatever, about our eternal glory and the dangers of eternal punishment. Like, we're, we basically made like, glory's whatever. Hell's like, meh. And how many people are like, man, I'd rather be like partying in hell. And we've almost like built it to where like, who wants to sit on a damp cloud? Because apparently it's just some like cool pyrotechnic party down in hell. So like we don't do ourselves any favor by talking about it like this. The Bible doesn't give us any of these ideas. Again, thanks Looney Tunes. That's essentially what we have. And we don't have much more to say about it, but there is so much more. The reason I'm talking about all of this is because the descent to hell and the rising of Jesus is incredibly like knocked down several notches because we don't have an understanding of what's really going on. You know what I mean? Like, in order for it, because we hear the rising of Jesus at least every year on Easter, right? 
the, the day we celebrate the resurrection, and we talk about it other times, but do we ever talk about the descent? No, never. We never do. We never talk about that interaction that Jesus has, but apparently Peter talks, he talks about it twice, Jude talks about it, it's assumed knowledge. So, buckle up, because we're going to do, we're going to take a really quick spin around the metaverse, okay? We're going to talk about not just physical realm. I feel like we're pretty solid on physical realm, but we understand this thing. But the heavenly realm and the realm below, this is identified, this three-layer idea and concept of all things is talked about a few different times. So think about it, and so how many, how many of you have kids that are in kids' ministry? Yes? Oh, put those hands up. There can't be that, only that many parents there. There's so many kids out there. I don't know what's going on if there's only that many. But, uh, and again, fathers, happy Father's Day. But we, um, when your kids come back and they're talking about the commandments, they're talking about setting up idols, okay? Don't make a graven image. Of what? There's three things. Heaven above or Oh, you're not doing the homework, parents. Heaven above, earth beneath, or the, the under the earth. There's these three layers. This is the correct understanding of the universe, all created things. Not just the created physical realm, but the heavenly realm and the realm below. The realm below includes the realm of the dead. There's other things like there's the abyss. There's other things like, uh, there's a lot of things that are talked about in scripture, but we never highlight it, we never talk about it, and so how can we give someone a proper warning of judgment when we don't even know what's happening? We don't get it. So we're gonna talk about that. Okay, so we're just dipping our toe into these things, and I'm sorry ahead of time for just running through some of these concepts, but it's already been a long morning, right? We had breakfast, we had a goodbye, had a really great update. I feel like I already had a full day before we got in here, so. Uh, I'm going to do my best, all right? So, good question asked. Why did Jesus descend? Did he have to? Normally, we'd say no. But will you understand the whole story? Absolutely. He had to descend. Had to. Why did he descend? I'm going to give you all three points right ahead. Okay, just round them down. Number one, to free the comforted dead. Two, to declare victory over sin and death. Three, to inaugurate the fullness of the kingdom in the last days. Boom. Can I'm out. If you have to leave, I get it. You got the three points. All right, so we're going to talk about that fullness of what I call the metaverse. That's probably some other name to that. I don't know what else to call all of, the, all of reality, right? Heaven, this, the earth, physical, and, and that below. All of reality. All the realities. So we begin with... We're going to go back in time and kind of set this up. We begin with a triune God needing nothing. We've talked about this before, right? The creator. He's the creator of all things. He's preeminent over all things. And since he created all things, and he's the most unique individual in existence, there is no one like Yahweh. And we really have to establish that. There is no one like our God. He is fully and utterly unique. No one is like him, okay? There's no one worthy of praise other than him. There's no one as powerful as he is. You're that classic question that atheists ask, what if, uh, can, or can God uh, create another God as strong as he is, as powerful as he is? 
you feel trapped because if you say no, then say, oh, God can't do anything. It's like, how can God create someone else that's uncreated? That's a dumb question. So then you give him the answer, the real answer. So, and sometime in before time, God creates a spiritual realm. We know that because we have passages that talk about what the angels did beforehand. It says that they rejoiced at the creation of this universe. We know they were there. What we actually see is that God has, had already established there all of these created beings in the spiritual realm and had a relationship with them and structure as far as governance and how that all worked. We do have all the details? No, I look forward to that someday. Get all the details on that. But he had established that already with them. If we go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, right there at the beginning of creation, we have a statement there that's normally used as a verse for the Trinity, but doesn't work like that grammatically, necessarily. It works better as a royal we, where God says, let us make man in our image. The grammar there is more akin to God sitting on a throne and making a declaration to the court. Let us do this. You're the royal we. This is the royal us. Let us do this. Really, it's, I'm not saying that anyone other than God did it. But what it is, it's this inclusion. It's this, it's this funny idea that God, though he is almighty and all-powerful, wants and desires participation from his created beings. So even in that, God says to the court, heavenly court, which we do get a picture of in Revelation 5, we get a picture of that court. God says, let us make man in our image. So we already have this well-established structure. So what that means is, humans were created to be a continuation, an expansion of an existing family. And that seems really weird to think about. But it's an extension of what God was already doing. We were to be part of the bigger, larger family of God. <clears throat> Humans were created, we can read this in Genesis, were created to have dominion, have dominion over the earth. We were to be God's representatives on earth, but we were to be a part of that existing government structure, to be a part of that. When we talk about the fall, that's a, one large aspect of the fall, is that humans no longer had a seat immediately at that table. Not in that same way. But that structure that God had created in heaven still exists, and we see it in heaven. Okay, buckle up. We're going to Psalm 82. We're going to speed up. Psalm 82. You may have read it. Uh, we're going to read it in the ESV. ESV. Do, do, do. Psalm 82. We're going to talk about a little bit of that structure. Psalm 82, God has taken, I told you to buckle up, right? God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Verse 2, this is God speaking from that elevated place. 
in the divine council. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Happy Father's Day. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Speaking of humans, it says they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse 6, I said, this is God saying, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all of the nations. So what we have here is a structure, an actual structure of governance that somehow does dip down into governing humanity. But who's God talking to? He's talking to a collection of ruling angels that sit in heaven. We have clumsy, clumsy English where we need more words, but it says the gods. There is no other real great word to use in English. These ruling angels are given a measure of authority over the earth. And what is happening here is that council is being judged by God, where he says, you are not doing what you were supposed to do. So they're failing in what they're supposed to do. Adam was created, again, to be a part of this ruling council, but after the fall lost a spot that is promised to be restored later. But that first fall that disqualified humans at this time from being a part of that, that's a part of our condition. For us, it seems very, very normal for us to be left out of that. That's the first rebellion. Adam and Eve were given the hope of the head crusher who would come, who would allow us to again rise in status to be able to do that. You've heard that promise given in 1 Corinthians that don't you all know that one day you'll rule, I'm sorry, you'll judge angels? That's what we're talking about. A place back in that position, in that spot. Truthfully, if we look at this for us, we'd say that the rebellion of man, like we talked about in Adam and Eve, we'd say like the fall, that was the fall. Right, that, was, that was the one place where we, we lost what we had. If you were to ask someone, a Jew, at the time of Jesus, someone who was informed and knew the teachings, they would say there's actually three rebellions. That's the first one they're familiar with. Let's take a look at the second one. It's going to connect into some of those verses we just read. Genesis chapter 6. Hopefully you didn't unbuckle But Genesis 6 gives us another view which is going to directly tie to this dissension of Jesus. Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 says, When a man began to, I'm sorry, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not abide with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And I'll end in verse 5 here. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and every intention 
the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The nutshell of this. Adam and Eve were told that their promised redeemer would come through the lineage of Eve. Through Eve, right? Through the seed of the woman would come what is referred to in that prophecy in Genesis 3 as the head crusher, the one who will come and crush Satan's head. So the counter move from the enemy was let's pollute humanity. And there were some of these who came down. These angels came and they mated with, had families with, humans. And it sounds so weird to say, but almost every single culture on earth has this part of the story in it for their understanding of humanity. Almost every single culture. And it was the common understood teaching of not only Israel, the Hebrews, but all the way up until the fourth century, this was a common, well-understood part of the theology. And then after the establishment of the Roman church, it, it fell out of favor as far as that discussion there. But this is the supernatural reading of Genesis chapter 6. And what it does is it gives really the real reason for the flood. Is that there were watcher angels, they're called that by Daniel, in Daniel chapter 10, these ruling angels, they came down, they mated, they mixed, to the point where we get Noah, who's of the line of Adam, that direct line, and says that he was pure in his generation. We may have been down to a very small grouping of humans who would have been able to continue on. But his family is put on an ark and preserved. And it's one of the primary reasons for the flood and for destruction. These offspring of the angels were the giants. They're recorded in Numbers 13. Only a boy named David, right, went up against a giant. They continued on. And sometimes we find it hard to go to some of those passages and try to figure out where are these guys coming from. And it's because we kind of ignore this whole aspect of teaching the Old Testament. Um, but that was the second rebellion. Humans actually engaged in that. Went into the structure of that, and that's why they were also destroyed. We have a third rebellion that's also recorded. Maybe you're able to guess. It's also in Genesis. In chapter 11, the third rebellion is the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, humans all say, we don't want God. They build a tower. They say, we, we completely reject God. The majority of humanity did that. And if you go to Genesis 11, and again, we don't have time to go through all of these different things. God said, <laughs> no. And what did he do? He confused their languages. He, he created, an, according to family groups and tribes, he divided out the peoples. And then in, in Genesis 11, it gives you 70 different groupings of, of humans. These are, these are the original 70 nations. So God said, you know what? You don't want me? That's fine. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, gives you a little bit more in that story. Deuteronomy 32, 8 talks about, uh, and it's sort of an offhand comment. Again, it's supposed to be assumed knowledge. It says, at that time, at the dividing of the nations, God divided the nations up according to the sons of God. 
So what you see here is they all come together and say, we don't want you, Yahweh. We don't want you as God. God says, fine. You serve these lesser ruling angels. So he put one over each nation. Daniel chapter 10 talks about two specific unique ruling angels. It talks about the prince of Persia that fought against Gabriel. It talks about Michael had to come and help him. And then as he's leaving, he says, oh man, I gotta gear up because I gotta fight the prince of Greece now too on the way out. I might have to call Michael again. So this is a reality in the scriptures that these things exist. What happens in Genesis 12? All right, all you nations, you, you get them. And he says, hey, Abram, I want you to leave. I'm going to make you a nation. You're going to be my nation. So all the nations rebelled. He says, you're going to be mine. It's pretty cool when you start to see how that structure pulls together. Then we get passages like this that, again, are assumed knowledge. Second Peter. So Peter writes about it in First and Second Peter. Second Peter. I keep saying Second Peter because I can't find the verse in my notes. <laughs> two, four. Chapter two, verse four. It says, for I, I'm sorry. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains and gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, that's his family, he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So again, Peter is saying like, yeah, that's the story. We all know that. Well, we don't. Generally, we don't even think about that. But there's a huge impact on scripture when we start to think that way. And start to look that even the structure of the nations of the world is used by the enemy as a rebellion against God. It's a very interesting worldview to look at. Psalm 58. I'll just read this to you. What we seem to get from scripture is that these ruling angels just aren't even cutting it. Psalm 58, verses one and two. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you defy the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The idea was they are still influencing human events. And I think we would say that in a soft way, like, yeah, the enemy has influence. They're saying, no, actually, structurally, governance-wise, they have an effect on the earth. And I think, again, Daniel 10 kind of highlights that. Going back to the creed, so what happened there? We've got more of a supernatural structure here. So he descends. He descends to the dead, the abode of the dead. Before Christ, when people died, everyone went to the grave. It's just that, just that some were comforted and some were in a not pleasant holding place until judgment. We get that from the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, if you remember, in I think Luke 19, where you have a, a, a divided structure and a big chasm that no one can cross in between. So that's the, the structure that we get. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross and talks to the thief and says, today you will be with me in paradise, that can't be that terrible a place. But when he dies, 
when he goes, he goes there. There's a really, really weird, yeah, I'll, I'll use the word weird, verse in Matthew chapter 27. And I think I've never really heard anyone talk about it. But in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, what's described is Jesus dies. And it says, yeah, and and almost casually. Yeah, and then, like, the dead came out of their graves. And they, like, hung around until the ascension. Can we get more on that, please? Like, what in the world? But at the death of Jesus, it says that they rose. Now, theologically, I don't think this is their final resurrection. It doesn't seem to fit there. But what this is, this is a prison break, if you want to put it that way. That's a fun way to say it. But Jesus goes to that place, and he lets them go. So Abraham, Moses, David, all these guys, and, and, and families, and all the, all the people who died who were faithful to, to Yahweh, they're in a place waiting. This question always comes up. How, how are people in the Old Testament saved? Same way we are, by grace through faith. Nothing changed there. Except they were saved on credit. We're saved on debit. Right? Before Jesus, they're all saying, someone's going to take care of this thing. I don't know how. And they go and they wait. And then Jesus shows up, right? He paid the debt, right? Paid off that credit. And they get to go. It's a very simple financial transaction. But he goes, they're freed. Right, so now when, when we experience that, when we die, I know I asked this before and it was overly simplistic, but it's okay to be simplistic here. When we die, where do we go? Heaven, yes, we go, we go to heaven. But we go to heaven because it's all been paid, it's all done, it's, there's already an account that is full and complete and it, it is enough to cover everybody. Not everybody cashes out. We cash out, we, get, we bear that benefit, right? This is the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. When he died, there was real true effect. The other thing that's talked about in Matthew 27, the veil ripped. There's now no division between man and God as there was before. There's now an open pathway for us to rejoin that ruling council. There is. What does Jesus do? He then, second thing we're talking about, he, uh, the second point, he goes and he declares victory to those in prison. We, we read all those passages, Jude, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. It says, he went to the angels who disobeyed in their former place. They left their proper abode. They came. They did the naughty stuff. My daughter's in here. They did naughty stuff. They made basically half human, half angels abominations. And for that, because of the flood, they go to this place. It says hell, but the Greek word used there is Tartarus. Anyone familiar with Greek mythology? That word is used in Greek mythology. It's the place where the Titans are. The Titans are kept in Tartarus. That's the word that Peter uses. Jesus goes to the deepest, darkest area of that prison. They're in chains. And he declares to them, remember thousands of years ago when you tried to keep God's plans from happening? You failed. And you know how he proved it? He went there and he left. Sin and death conquered. Amen. You can say amen. We should say it over and over. I mean, death, sin, conquered, done. 
And then when he left, which now we get to the second part, three days later, Rose, coming up and out, proved he was who he said he was. He proved his dominion in the world beneath by being resurrected here, by defying sin and death. He proved that he was the true ruler here. Declared victory here, proved it here, right? He's resurrected. He goes, the women go to the grave. No one's there. Bodily, his physical body was redeemed and resurrected. So why three days? Hosea gives a prophecy. I know we don't normally read Hosea, but we should. Hosea gives a prophecy. Uh, Is it up? I'll just read it off there if I can't get to it here. That's the one I didn't mark. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for for he has torn us that we may heal. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise up that we may live before him. Died on a Friday. Friday in the order of creation was the day that humans were created. He rested in the grave on the seventh day. On the first day, the day of first creation, he then actually does a new creation. His resurrected body, we see that pattern fulfilled. That three days is a really beautiful picture. Connects us back. We read in Luke 24 that it was real. It was attested to. His resurrection was attested to by lots of witnesses. And then for weeks after, it's attested to by hundreds of people that he was resurrected. This is Jesus declaring his victory on earth. He exemplifies the future fulfillment of all the promises of God. This, this is the beginning, truly, the beginning of this paradigm shift where we as humans now can look forward to our own resurrection. He is the proof of the potency of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Starting there, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by man came death, sorry, by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong. Christ. This is the pattern. This is what we see. This is the inauguration. The fact that he rose is that proof. In rising, he declares to creation his own work. And this is also forgotten sometimes. The kingdom of darkness is put on notice. It's very easy to feel like the kingdom of heaven is on defense. It's the opposite. With Jesus actually declaring Victory in the place beneath, rising here on earth, he declares victory here and basically puts the kingdom of darkness on notice. Say, it's done. Which is why even in Peter's first sermon in Acts, he says, hey, we're in the last days. We're ramping up. It's all coming apart. 
for the kingdom of darkness. That's not to say that there isn't still darkness here on earth. That's not to say that there isn't still difficulty. But we know that he has declared this. This is the supernatural reality of our spiritual and physical victory in him. And this is something that we actually need to take out of this arena and we need to put it into our daily life. It completely changes our entire life when we take it out of the theoretical and out of the conversations that we have here in the compartmentalized spiritualness that we do when we talk with each other and we put it into our real life, it changes everything. This morning, we're saying goodbye to the McGraths, right? Normal human physical Super sad, right? You add this supernatural element to it, and you know what we say? The McGraths are being deployed by the king of the universe to go to another place to live and to serve the king of the universe, to bring about the purposes that he has on earth, to interact with people in a providential way, to go and have interactions with people that no one else could have. This is a part of their supernatural journey, and for us to only be sad means that we don't understand We haven't put the pieces together. This is why it says when people die, we don't mourn like those who don't have any hope. If we're just sad, we've missed it. We've missed all of it. If we don't understand how these pieces all put together, we make our decisions terribly because we only make decisions based on what we can see. And I think that we could all agree, we as human beings can't really see past the end of our own nose. We're so limited. We can't even experience the next moment. We only experience this one. We can never experience a past one. We're stuck here, right? But thanks be to God. Because all of these things we're looking at allow us to live an eternal kind of life now. When we make decisions, we don't just make decisions on a temporal, physical thing here. We make decisions based on the fact that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is. He really accomplished the things that he said, and we are supposed to live life in light of those things throwing off all those things that easily encumber and running fast towards our reward. That's how we're supposed to live. We can only do it if we take the supernatural element and bring it into our daily lives. And I say this not to be flippant. I say this not to in any way denigrate the medical profession or the medical advancements that we have. All I'm saying is, when you have a headache, is your first notion to go pop a pill or to pray to Jesus. That seems super small, super little thing. What does it matter? Our perspective matters. We don't even acknowledge God in a lot of those situations. God, I'll save my interaction with you for something serious. I'm supposed to live life in light of this thing. I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying you don't take ibuprofen, right? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, What's our inclination? Do we have such marked lines of like, this is real life, this is spiritual life? Like, oh, headaches fall into this category, so I never interact with God on those things? Right? It's a silly little thing, but when I started to think about it, I'm like, wow, I really don't think about God half the time in my day. How terrible to spend time with someone all day and to be ignored most of the time. Like, you're not even there. Right? If God really is there, doesn't that change how we live, how we talk? 
Doesn't that supernatural reality change the decisions that we make to be of massive importance? It should. We should get goosebumps whenever we say, the grave is empty. He is risen. It's not just a phrase. It's a reality. It's a reality that we have to make sure that we don't let fall dead. It's a reality that everyone else in the world wishes that they had. They wish they had something bigger than themselves to believe in, to trust in. They had purpose beyond themselves and their own boring, meaningless life. And we have it. And normally we ignore it. And it is sad. It's sad that we do that. We need to meditate on the impact of the truth of the supernatural. There's a Bill Gaither hymn that uh, says very simply, because he lives, some of you know it, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living because he lives, because he rose, because it's real. Life is worth living. Father, we thank you for the tremendous truth that you show us. Lord, thank you that no matter how powerful the enemy seems, no no matter how horrible the enemy's plans may be, we know that you looked them in the eyes, stood your ground, and declared your victory before them. We know that every demon trembles. We know that every, every individual in the enemy ranks shakes in their boots with the reality of who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that we would just take a portion of that understanding and apply it to our lives daily. Remind ourselves somehow, write a note, send an alarm on our phone just to remember. Remember that you are alive and that means that we are part of this epic, epic plan. Lord, I pray that we prepare our lives for it. I pray that we would have family meetings where we say, well, Jesus is amazing and big and great and so what are we gonna do, family? What amazing thing is God calling us to do because you have called us Lord, to speak your truth to others, to warn of impending judgment. Lord, to seek out and save the lost. You've called us to all of these things. God, I pray that the supernatural element of your reality would invade our lives daily and that the remembrance of the fact that you rose would embolden us to the point that we would live lives of massive significance because that's what you've called us to do. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would not lose a fire in our heart, in our gut. Lord, that we would wake up every morning ready to follow you, to trust in you, to wait on you. Lord, that we would band together, that we would encourage each other, love each other, that we'd see other people's sufferings as an opportunity for us to encourage and for them to grow and to become more like your son. Lord, I pray that as we go through challenges and suffering, that we would thank you for the opportunity to live life as spirit-filled human beings who live beyond our suffering and recognize that we look forward to the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ that we might fully step into what you've called us to be, which is the son, the daughter, the family of God, and to stand with you in ruling the universe because of who you are, not because of our merit, and I pray that it would change how we live our lives. Lord, thank you. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the victor. Amen.